James, thank you so very much for reading. Uh, For those who are wondering, that was Chinese, and one of our desires here in our church, just God has brought many people from the nations to worship with us over the years. And so if you've been paying attention, you'll see a lot of times we open in prayer in another language. Melissa, thank you so very much. Or we'll have the scriptures read in another language, and many times we'll sing, usually in Spanish, just because it's a lot easier for us for some of us to sing in Spanish. And we do that to celebrate the diversity that God has given us. And today we're actually going to look at a passage that if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. But there was a serious cultural issue going on in the passage we just read today. But before we do that, I want to highlight something. We're going to shift gears a little bit. And for those who don't know, here the church at Woodbine, we are one of the eight campuses, nine campuses of Brentwood Baptist Church. And we, our church, Brentwood Baptist Church, has been in existence for a little over, oof, gosh, 50-something years. No, longer than that. Yeah, 50-something years. I can't remember right now. Dad, I'm going to have to ask you. I can't remember. And we've only had two senior pastors. Think about that. 50-plus years, two senior pastors. And a couple months ago, our senior pastor, Mike Glenn, announced that this is his last year a senior pastor. And I want to encourage you, I encourage myself, we need to be praying for the search for the next senior pastor whom God is calling to lead our church family. And you might be asking, okay, well, how does that job search go? How does that search finding that person who God has called up? What is the difference between the senior pastor at Brentwood Baptist Church and say me, the campus and teaching pastor here at the Church of Woodbine? There's a big difference. And even the process of praying and seeking the Lord's face and finding that next person is even different. And so we're going to watch a short video from one of our trustees who's going to give an update on where we are and our senior pastor search. And so please listen. And then we'll spend some time praying for that search right now. So here we go. My name is Randy Overton, and I serve as the vice chairman of the trustees. As we go through this search process for a new senior pastor, we want to take a few moments to highlight two important items. First, some of you may be asking what the senior pastor does and how that is different from your campus pastor. Well, according to our bylaws, all pastors, both senior pastor and campus pastors, have three primary roles. These roles are one, spiritual teaching for the church under the authority and direction of God as revealed through his Holy Spirit and scripture. Two, Bible study and preparation for evangelical preaching and teaching. And three, commitment to prayer and growth in personal discipleship. So what is the difference between a senior pastor and a campus pastor? The senior pastor is the principal spiritual leader of our church and all of our campuses. He casts vision and mission and mentors our campus pastors. He also serves as our Brentwood campus's main preaching and teaching pastor. The campus pastor serves as the spiritual leader of his respective campus. He is also responsible for aligning his campus with the mission and vision of the church and overseeing its daily operations. This includes leading and shepherding the campus staff and congregation. The candidate affirmation process is the second important item we want to bring your attention to. Once the trustees have a senior pastor candidate recommend to the church, we will make a formal announcement to the entire church. From there, you will have an opportunity to get to know the candidate through various events and other communication methods. Then our church will hold a vote for you as a church member of Brentwood Baptist Church and its campuses to affirm the candidate. Remember, you can only vote if you're a church member. 
Before we go, we want to remind you to pray regarding this process. Pray for wisdom and unity in our church. Pray for our current senior pastor, Mike Glenn, as he transitions out of his role. Pray for our next senior pastor. Pray that God provides clarity in his calling to shepherd our church. We believe God is going to bless our church through this process. I'm excited about what God has for us next, and I hope you are too. All right, let us stand. And there were three bullet points. I actually added a fourth one. Let's stand, and we're going to spend some time praying for our senior pastor search. And here's the prayer request. The first one is pray for the trustees and the process. Pray for wisdom and unity. And let's just right now for a moment, take a few moments praying for our trustees during this time. In your spot, in your place, you can pray quietly in your heart or even a little bit out loud with your mouth, but let us pray. Our second prayer request is to pray for our current senior pastor, Mike Glenn. Let's pray for him during this time. He's been serving for almost 33 years at Brentwood Baptist Church. Let's pray for him, this transition. Let's even thank the Lord for all that God has done in and through his ministry and life. Let's pray for Mike Glenn. Number three, let's pray for our next senior pastor. Pray that God provides clarity and their calling to shepherd our church. Let's pray. God knows who it is. We can thank him for that. And finally, let's pray for our entire church family scattered throughout middle Tennessee as we've been singing the book of Acts for one heart one mind, one spirit. Let us pray for our church. Father, we praise you and we thank you so much for all that you do in our lives, for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. There is no one like you. Father, we lift up Pastor Mike. We lift up our trustees, Lord, even for every member of our church family scattered throughout Middle Tennessee. Father, give us one unity in mind, heart, spirit. We lift up our new senior pastor. You already know who it is, and we thank you for that, Father. Lord, open and close the right doors. Give the trustees vision and wisdom, and then us as a church to affirm that decision, that calling that you placed on that man's life. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you would open your word to us today. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Give me your words. Father, bring encouragement, conviction, transformation, healing, encouragement, all for the glory of Jesus. And we ask these things in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. I know it's been said a couple of times today, but welcome to the church at Woodbine. It is a joy and pleasure seeing each and every one of you here today. For those who are new, we are going through the book of Acts, and I didn't bring my journal up, but still on those black two tables, there's like four or five journals of the book of Acts. On one side is the scripture, the other side is just blank lines for you to journal in. Take one home. Take one and give it to a friend, a roommate, a neighbor. They are for you. We read God's written word to encounter 
the living word. Last week, we were looking at the church gifts. And it was like a 62-minute sermon on tithing. It wasn't that long, but it was pretty long. A lot of notes. The church gifts. Tithing is a command. It is an act of worship. And it is also an act of trust. We tithe because we worship him. We tithe because we trust in him. We tithe because we're commanded to. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, each one of us should decide in our hearts what to give, not reluctantly nor under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver, and we're commanded to honor him with our wealth. Today, we're going to talk about the church serves. Who likes to serve here? Who likes to serve? And awesome, man, my hand would be down if I wasn't the pastor. No, I'm teasing. Years ago, and I'm going to make fun of myself, the first time I'm, well, the first time that Christy and I were an item, we weren't dating yet. I was still in Mexico. She had just moved back from Honduras to here. The first time I went to her house, my brother was getting married, and I flew in here to Nashville. They picked me up, and that very night, I flooded the toilet in the bathroom where I was staying, and I about died. I'd met my future in-laws at our college graduation, but it was high, high, and Christy and I weren't dating or anything. But the official time where we were an item, that very first day in the house, I flooded the toilet. I wanted to crawl under a rock. And yet there my father-in-law and my future mother-in-law were on their hands and knees with towels and a mop, cleaning it all up. About five years later, my father-in-law came down And we had built our house out of concrete and brick, and our floor was concrete. And Christy was about seven months pregnant with Samuel. And my father-in-law came down, and we tiled the whole house, the floor. My fingers were throbbing, my knees ached, my elbows hurt, and I was like 32 years old. My father-in-law was significantly older than me at the time, and I thought, how is he doing it? A servant. My mother-in-law is the same way. They will bend over backwards to serve, serve. Well, I'm, I must be going to ask a favor here later on today. I'm, I'm teasing. They're over here sitting over here. I'm teasing. I'm totally teasing. But serving. I got a picture of a very famous athlete. A movie was made out of him years ago. This is Eric Little. Some of you have probably seen the movie Chariots of Fire. It's an oldie. It came out in 1980. I went and saw it as a third grader. I thought it was super boring. It's now one of my favorite movies. He won the gold medal in the 1924 Olympics in the 400. He won the bronze in the 200. He played on Scotland's international rugby team. He was an amazing athlete. He was born, though, as a missionary kid in China. Grew up in China, came back to Scotland. Was this amazing athlete. After the 24 Olympics... He got more training, went back to China and served until World War II. When the Japanese invaded parts of China, he, along with most foreigners, were put into prison camps, work internment camps. And that's where he died, February 21st, 1945. While in camp, his wife, his two daughters, and the third daughter on the way, who he never met, were back in Canada. And in this camp he was in, there were adults, there were old people, there were even children whose parents weren't even there. It was a prison camp. 
And there are numerous testimonies. You can go online and read about them. But one person, Dr. Mitchell, his name is David Mitchell. He is a little child at the time in this camp. And this is how he described Eric Little in the camp. Eric Little often spoke to us from 1 Corinthians 13 and Matthew 5. These passages from the New Testament clearly portray the secret of his selfless and humble life. Only on rare occasions when requested would he speak of his refusal to run on Sunday and his Olympic record, which is what he's mainly known for now. But this is what he was really known for here. Not only did Eric Little organize sports and recreation through his time in internment camp, he helped many people through teaching and tutoring. He gave special care to the older people, the weak and the ill, to whom the conditions in camp were very trying. He was always involved in the Christian meetings, which were part of camp life, despite the squalor of the open cesspools, rats, flies, and disease. In the crowded camp, life took on a very normal routine, though without the faithful and cheerful support of Eric Little, many people would never have been able to manage. None of us will ever forget this man who was totally committed to putting God first, a man whose humble life combined muscular Christianity with radiant godliness. What was his secret? He unreservedly he unreservedly committed his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. That friendship to Jesus meant everything to him. By the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp early each morning, he and his roommate in the men's cramped dormitory studied the Bible and talked with God for an hour every day. Another woman who was a little girl at the time, her name was Mary Taylor Previte or Previt. She was imprisoned in the same prison camp, and she described Eric as Jesus in running shoes. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor while still in prison and died several months before the war ended. But because of his love for Christ, he was willing to serve children, the elderly, the sick in this prison camp. Why? His love for Christ. Today, we're talking about the church serves right here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Let's stand. We're going to read the first couple of these verses, and we're going to hit it really hard. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it'll be on your screen. Sorry for this screen. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's something really different about our ceiling today. I don't know if you've you noticed it or not, but one of our overheads is not working this morning. We'll see if you figure it out. Verse 1 says this, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. All right, you can have a seat. Here in the early church, man, going to burn those calories for lunch, right? Here in, this, here in this early church in the book of Acts, here's the context. The church has gone from 120 people before the day of Pentecost on the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes down. He fills the believers. Peter preaches, and 3,000 people get saved. A few weeks later, Peter and John are going up to the temple, and this crippled man who is crippled from birth asks for money, and Peter, through the power and presence of Holy Spirit, heals the man. He starts jumping around and leaping, and the people in the temple complex come running over to see what's going on. Peter preaches again, another 2,000 people get saved. The church is growing, and it says throughout that the Lord is adding to their day the numbers of those becoming saved and becoming disciples. There is incredible unity. There are signs. There are wonders. There are miracles. 
People are staying faithful to one another. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, this is how it's described. Chris, if you can put it up. The response of the church when there was great persecution, this is how they responded when there was persecution. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They are of one heart and one mind. Now, they weren't perfect. Just last week, we saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Immediate judgment on people, not because they didn't give everything they had, but because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And that can be very hard for us sometimes to grasp. Why would God do that? I don't know. But great awe and fear came over the whole church and everyone who heard what had happened. And then we come to the chapter 6. And again, the apostles all throughout chapter 5, they were arrested again. They were flogged and beaten and threatened. And yet this is how they responded. Preaching, teaching, fellowship, commitment, first to Jesus, then to one another. And then what happens? It says that as the church, as the disciples were increasing in number, there was the dispute, a complaint about the widows of the Hellenistic Jews and those of the Hebraic Jews. What was going on? There are all these widows that were part of the church. And for us here in the, in the West, 2,000 years later, we might actually miss this phrase here. But when it says here in verse 1, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. We're called to take care of widows. And during the day of Pentecost, there were Jewish people all throughout the Roman world had come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. Many of them got saved and stayed in Jerusalem. And they were Jewish, but they were Hellenists. That means that they had adopted Greek culture. They also spoke Greek. They didn't speak Aramaic, which was the dialect of the Hebrew dialect for the Hebrews, for those living in Palestine and Israel. And as the church grew, what was happening? The widows, the Hellenistic widows, the Greek Jewish widows were being left out from the daily, say daily, daily distribution of food. There's two problems that are arising. One is a socioeconomic issue, poor widows. The other one is a racial issue, tension. They all are Jewish. But one was Greek Jewish. The other was Israel-Palestinian Jewish. They spoke different languages. They worshiped the same God. But their cultures were different. Don't ever tell a Canadian that they're an American. Don't tell someone from Peru, oh, well, you're Mexican. Or, you, or we look at people from Southeast Asia and we just say, oh, they're Asian. Or we see someone from Africa, oh, you know the Africans. Really? There's over 200 countries in this world. And if we mistake and call a Mexican a Guatemalan or a Chilean a Brazilian, mm, we might have a fight on our hands. Even within countries, there can be numerous cultures and distinctions. And right now, the church here in chapter 6 is predominantly, if not completely, made up of Jewish people. Some are from Israel, Palestine. They speak Hebrew 
entrenched in Hebrew culture, entrenched in Old Testament Hebrew culture, yet they love and now believe Jesus. The other set of Jewish Christians are those who've adopted almost completely Greek culture. Now, I'm not talking about the pagan Greek religions, but speaking Greek, having different customs from different countries. Yes, they're Jewish by their faith and their traditions on one hand, but they're completely different than their Palestinian Jewish Christian brothers from Israel. They don't speak the same language. They don't have the same culture. One of my best friends, I took him to uh, El Cubilete Mexicano. It's a Mexican restaurant right up here on Nolensville Road. He then took his two boys there like a week or two ago. And one of his boys, as they're in the restaurant, they're looking around and said, Dad, we are the only white people in this restaurant. And he was excited. And I was like, well, we can go all up and down Nolensville Road of all different types of restaurants. It's awesome. But the different nationalities and ethnicities can naturally cause problems, misunderstandings, and offenses. And that's what's happening right here. The Hellenistic Jews are beginning to complain to the Hebrew Jews. Our widows are being left out. Remember, the leaders of the church are all Hebraic Jews. This can be a serious issue. The opportunity for incredible division and schism is great. What do the apostles say? Verse 2, the 12, those are the 12 apostles, summoned the whole company of disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. That sounds kind of arrogant. Aren't they called to serve? Aren't they called to serve? Is waiting on tables for the apostles too belittle? Is that too below them? Think about it. It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom you can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is super important. The apostles knew their calling and they knew their role. They, were, they saw Jesus. They were with Jesus. They had a special calling and experience and opportunity on their hands. And they were called to preach and teach and pray. That was their role. Too many times we expect the church leadership to be all things to all people. And if we try to become all things to all people, we become nothing to no one. It is vital for every single one of us to understand our calling, our giftings, our talents, our passions. And yes, there are times when we are called where we got to clean up the flooded toilet. And we're called to do, quote unquote, family chores in our church family. Absolutely. But if I were to ask my daughter Margie to go out and work full time to provide for our family, that would be sin on my part because that's not her call nor her role in the Jones family. That is my calling. That is my responsibility. And these apostles, they knew that that they were commissioned by Jesus to preach and teach and dedicate their lives to serving. And they knew that if they had to stop doing the teaching and preaching and equipping in that way to go to serve tables and to serve widows, they would be undermining the very mission of the church. Am I making sense? 
Yes. We are a body. Not all of us are the finger or the eye or the ear, but we need the finger and the eye and the ear, the heart, the mind, the arms, the legs to survive as a body. And these apostles knew that. What do they do? They say, brothers and sisters, you select from among, you select from among you. They're giving that authority and that power over to the people to select what? Men of what? Good reputation, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. Think about the words, good reputation. What does it mean that this person, this man or this woman has a good reputation? Integrous, faithful, trustworthy, humble, reliable, dependable, of a good reputation. When others on the outside speak of that person, they lift them up. They're like, oh, man, super integrous, humble, reliable, dependable. My question for all of us, are you known as having a good reputation? Full of the Spirit. That means someone who has an intimate, growing relationship with Jesus. Full of wisdom. This is a huge opportunity for service. It's a huge opportunity for division. And they needed men full of wisdom to serve and know. And then the apostles affirm their calling, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal, verse 5, pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This is also powerful. All seven of these men are Hellenistic Jews. They're going to be able to speak to these widows. They're going to understand the culture of the Hellenistic Jewish Christians. And they've been given the leadership to actually lead in that area. Full of faith, full of Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. It's giving power and authority to the very people that were having the issue. That were being left out and rejected. And what the apostles advised, what the church adopted brought this church, instead of being divided and separated, brought them even closer together. And here's the key. They set them before the apostles, and this is what I love, and they prayed, laid hands on these men. Prayer. If prayer is not wrapped up into everything we do, why do we even try doing it? We have to pray, pray, pray every day in our walk with Jesus, corporately as a church. It's prayer. My best friend, one of my best friends in Mexico, he'd always say, mucho oración, mucho poder, poco oración, poco poder. Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. I won't even go there. Never mind. That's going to get us real sidetracked. The result of this consecration of what the church traditionally calls the first seven deacons in the church. In verse 7, it says this, So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. 
because the apostles stayed faithful to their calling, which was preaching, teaching, and prayer. And then authority and power and commissioning was given over to another group of leaders, but true servants to serve the widows, the forgotten, the poor. And there was greater unity, greater growth, greater discipleship. There is so much that we can learn out of this passage. Johnny taught you how to say one and then two. The number after two is what? Three. Very good, Nancy. You're paying attention. There are four. There's a lot we can learn, but there's four things in this passage really quickly. The first one is this. There will be challenges and difficulties within the church. That's always going to happen until Jesus comes back. Expect it. Number two, character, humility, and a spirit-filled life are essential for leadership in the church. I charge you and me to pray for our senior pastor, Mike Glenn, and our future senior pastor. Please pray for me. Pray for our staff here. We desperately need it. The third point, each one of us are uniquely called and gifted by the Holy Spirit to edify the church. Number four, the power of prayer and unity within the church. There is no substitute. We've got to be a people of prayer. To close, and I want to invite the worship team to come up. I'm kind of cutting this a little bit short, but worship team, go ahead and come on up. Deacons. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But our greatest deacon, our chief deacon, is Jesus Christ himself. Mark chapter 10, 44 and 45, Jesus said this, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said this in the context of telling his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, where they're going to turn the Son of Man over, which is Jesus. It was his favorite title he gave himself. And they're going to flog him and beat him, and they're going to crucify him. But after three days, he will rise again. They didn't understand it. They didn't get it. Shortly afterwards, the mother of John and James came to Jesus and asked for a favor. And she said, when you enter your kingdom, I want you to allow one of my sons to sit on your right and the other one on your left. Power and authority. When the other 10 heard about this, they became indignant, saying indignant. That's becoming greatly angry. It's not even good English. Furious with those two. And that's when Jesus said this right here. Jesus is the greatest servant of all. And as his followers were to adopt his heart attitude of becoming a servant. And I want to challenge you and me. Let's look for ways how we can serve. Look for ways how we can lift others up. Look for ways how we serve in our homes, our job and workplace, our school, here as a church body not only serving in what we're gifted and passionate about, but also serving in ways where there's need and great need. If you don't know how to get plugged in, come ask us. There's numerous opportunities. But more than anything, may our eyes be fixed on Jesus, who is the servant of all. Let us stand. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for this incredible day. We love you. We worship you. We praise you. Jesus, that you didn't come to be served, but you came to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Jesus, may we adopt and have that same attitude and that same life of serving, serving the weak, the poor, the widow, the outcast, the foreigner, the stranger, even serving those who rub us the wrong way, even serving and praying for and blessing our enemies. Jesus, may we bow the knee and have your attitude of servant. And it's for your glory, Lord. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. As we sing, if you want or need prayer, we would love to pray with you. There'll be a couple of us over here at the Next Steps area, and we would love to pray with you. Let us worship him.